It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. Buckhead-based filmmaker Frederick Taylor is very busy. He screened one of his films at the Cannes Film Festival this summer, and he'll have films showing at both the Out on Film Festival in Atlanta and the North Georgia Film Festival this fall. And he's still working on more new projects. Felicia Feaster spoke with Taylor recently, and she's here to bring us that conversation. Welcome, Felicia. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm great. So uh, this guy sounds like he's really busy. He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's made quite a few, and this is not, this current film taking Jay's setting from underground clubs to the main stage is not his first award-winning film. He did win an Emmy for it, which is super exciting, but he's an Atlanta-based filmmaker, and the film is about this really fascinating dance phenomenon called Jay setting. In some circles, it's also called bucking because of the very unique pelvic thrust involved in this particular dance style. And Jay setting originated actually at HBCUs. It's a dance form that women in the dance lines at, at these colleges created that blends these militaristic gestures, African dance, super seductive, super captivating dance style, but it has sort of been adopted by the LGBTQ community, especially in Atlanta, which is a huge center for J setting. And they've adapted that dance form, made their own sort of, I wouldn't say improvements, their own innovations and changed the style. And it's become this huge phenomenon. It's sort of like voguing, if people think of Madonna and voguing and those voguing balls um, that, that we've seen in the past. It's a sort of more contemporary dance style that's associated with HBCUs. And the, and the absolute passion that these LGBTQ dancers had for that dance form that, that was involved with marching bands and the dance line at HBCUs. 
Cool. So this and and he's going to be showing this film right at uh, the Out on Film Festival and and the North Georgia Film Festival this fall too, right? Right. So people actually um, for Out on Film they can see the film in the theater at Landmark Midtown Art Cinema, but you can also watch it online. So if you don't have a chance, you know, to get down in 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 physical a physical sense to the theater you can you can watch it at home so it gives you some good options if you're still a little nervous about getting back into the theater because of covid so i highly highly encourage people to see this film the style the dance style jay setting is completely mesmerizing completely captivating and so unique to atlanta atlanta itself is a prime player in this film. Uh, you'll see all these street art murals, the skyline, Piedmont Park, Krog Street Tunnel, all of these iconic Atlanta places, which are the background to the dancing that's done in the film. It's a really creative film because Frederick Taylor had to shoot it during COVID. So he had to be really creative in terms of how he did that, how he used drone footage, how he shot the dance scenes outside because this is a dance form that takes place in underground clubs in Atlanta tracks and other places where there are these amazing J setting battles between um, rival dance teams. So it's like the jets and the sharks, you know, yeah. duking out on the dance floor. So um, it's just a completely captivating film. If you love Atlanta, uh, if you love what makes Atlanta unique, you will absolutely love this film. Well, that's terrific. So is there anything else we should know before we're, we go into your uh, conversation with Frederick Taylor? Only that you will absolutely be unable to not try some moves once you see this film. <laughs> I'm not a dancer. I, I, had to, I had to do some of this. It's too <laughs> fantastic. That's terrific. All right. Well, thanks so much, Felicia. Thank you. And let's hear from uh, Frederick Taylor. Hi, Frederick Taylor. Thanks for joining us today. So we're going to be talking about your short film, Taking Jay Setting from Underground Clubs to the Main Stage, which was made for the PBS series If Cities Could Dance. And your film just won an Emmy this June. So congratulations uh, on that. Thank you, Felicia. I really appreciate that. Can you kind of describe for, for someone who doesn't know this film, what uh, Taking Jay setting from underground clubs to the main stage, what's it about? You know what it is? It's about, it's about many different things on many different levels. I think initially from just a sociological standpoint, it's about taking a step forward. It's about progression at a time when there are many people debating the legitimacy of progress. And what this story really focuses on is the undeniability of the human spirit. These people are young, these people are of African descent, these people are LGBTQ, and these people are incredible, incredible artists, and they are doing something that the rest of us regular human beings cannot do. And that is something that's really special in a world where everything has become so tech, so automated, and so accessible for anybody and everybody. The one thing you cannot fake the funk on as they used to say a long time ago, is dancing. It is the ultimate of human expression that has been there from the beginning. 
and it is still here now and you cannot augment it in any way you can't cheat the game as they like to say as well you either know it and you can do it and you can learn the steps and you have the energy to do it and you have the freeing of the soul to be able to do it and that's rare air these days because we've become so self-obsessed so narcissistic so self-aware so instagrammy and caring so much about what other people think when you look at these individuals dance they like do not care what other people think and that's what we can get out of this before we get into all of the other things like the trend and the marketability and how do you you know put a label on it or as Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, put a stamp on it, put it on a lunchbox and sell it. Like before all of that, before the numbers people and the accounting people start coming in and trying to like get it into the system, this is pure, pure art. I mean, we're looking at something on the, once again, on the street level, there is so much art and soul on the street level in these major urban centers that so much of the discourse of the past four or five years has been trying to break up and disperse. And at the end of the day, that will not happen. And we will continue to absorb ourselves in the sensibility of the great urban centers of America. And with that comes diversity. And, and that's what it, it says, you know, it people, it's jaw dropping stuff you know i absolutely positively love it well i have to say i agree with you in terms of dance as this kind of magical form it's a way of conveying meaning obviously without words of conveying passion and just this i don't want to sound corny but something that i would call the human spirit and and it's so powerful in your film so powerful in fact that after watching it for about the third time I watched probably three hours uh, on YouTube of HBCU bands and dancers last night because I was completely captivated by this dance form that your film is about called J setting. So J setting has origins in HBCUs and the dance lines there. But what your film is about is the LGBTQ community, which took this form of J studying, this dance form, and transformed it and made it their own. And now it's like a dance form that's really kind of associated with Atlanta. And, and so much of your film really captures that, the, the uniqueness of this city as part of that form. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the origins? I know that you're not a, necessarily a dance expert, but I'm just curious about what you would say about the origins of, of J setting at Jackson State University, where that originally came from. Here's some interesting footnotes uh, about that, uh, starting with Jackson State. Jackson State is to the civil rights era what Kent State is to the civil rights era for uh, the general market or AKA white people, however you want to classify that. Um, Jackson State had its own incident in the early 1970s where the police started firing upon students who were in a protest who had taken over a dorm. 
Um, and of course it became a national news story or whatever. It didn't necessarily go into the general market folklore at that particular time. Within the African-American community, it was a very famous incident that everybody knew about. And Jackson State has always been a cutting edge institution as far as the social order is concerned. So this particular academic environment was perfect for this type of opportunity to gestate. Some of the other more, more famous people that went to Jackson State um, were football players, uh, namely Walter Payton, one of the greatest running backs of all time, and Jerry Rice is considered one of the greatest football player of all time. They both went to Jackson State, and a lot of really great academics have come through the Jackson State system. The HBCU system in general has always been known for its marching bands. My father taught at an HBCU school right outside of Philadelphia, a place called Cheney University, and he was the musical director at Cheney University. And some of my first memories being a young kid was going out on Saturdays and my dad being the band director sitting in the stands with my dad he's and watching all of the marching and all the majorettes and the bands and things like that so i was indoctrinated into that world very early i knew what hbcu marching was and hbcu dance and step and all of that stuff um and was completely captivated that's how i learned how to to dance um later ended up on a, a, a teen dance show as a kid in philadelphia as, as well my mother had a brother who was LGBTQ and he was an original soul train dancer and he grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago as well and so there was always a sensibility and a sensitivity that I had for young black men that were a part of the LGBTQ community as well. So for me personally being involved in this project, it was just a lot of pieces to the puzzle coming together. It was sort of a constellation or a zeitgeist, however you wanna label it or classify it, but it felt right. And I felt as though I was the right person at the right time, in spite of everything that was going on around us, which was social upheaval and the pandemic and all of this other stuff we didn't know about COVID. And this was before any of us were vaccinated as well. We were all very vulnerable at that particular time. And the only way we could protect ourselves was through our behavior. And, you know, making films, it, it, counters that it's the opposite of that making films you have to like get around people you have to get in people's faces you have to be in close proximity tight quarters things like that there's a risk there is a bio risk in making film but this particular story was just so important to everybody involved that honestly it was worth the risk it was like let's you know you got to trust a little bit and you roll the dice and, and see what happens and by doing that you know here we are here's an emmy and a lot of really great light being shined on the hbcu experience which you spent a lot of time doing a deep dive of uh last night as as well and light being shined on the lgbtq community and specifically black men um, there's a lot that people don't understand about what black men go through that are gay and the challenges that they have. And they kind of have this double whammy thing going on. It's like, oh, you're black and you're gay. So you go all the way to the back of the bus. Please be not seen or heard, you know? And so there is this development of the black gay male mentality that is that orbits around 
fierceness, this undeniability. It's like when you see a black gay male, you go, wow, look at that. That's energy. That person is undeniable. You cannot tell that person no. That's incredible. That's the human spirit that always punches through the universe in spite of whatever surroundings there are or circumstances. And this is what we can learn as, as people. We can all use a little bit of black gay maleness in us as we stand up to the, uh, to, to the system. I mean, you, you go back and you revisit things like James Baldwin and you just have to tip your cap. You're just like, wow, this guy is just fearless. He is not afraid of anybody. And that's what the film is really about. And that's the, the, the focus. And that was my attempt to honor that as the, the filmmaker. And that's what I do. I really try to find stories that I can honor the organic nature of the subject and just sort of lift it into a, a higher light. I don't really think about the commoditization part of the film as I'm making it. Um, that kind of comes into play after it's been, after it's been done. But initially it was like, you know, I just really want to tell these guys story because they're just terrific human beings. Well, that fierceness that you talk about definitely comes through. I defy anyone to watch your film and not try a couple of the moves. I mean, it's completely captivating. It's impossible. It's impossible. Style. I mean, this dance style of J setting, which some people refer to as bucking because of this kind of pelvic thrust that's involved sure. with the dance form. So Jay setting originated at Jackson State University with this dance line called the Prancing Jay Sets, who were super yeah. influential. They, you know, you'll see those moves adopted by Beyonce and Absolutely. they've just yeah. into the popular culture in so many ways. But obviously you're saying, you know, what these black gay men are bringing to Jay setting is completely unique. I mean, to me, it, it combines a lot of different elements. One of your dancers talks about it's masculine, it's feminine. I mean, it's really like the gestures are kind of militaristic, but they're also kind of soft and, mm -hmm. and sort of creative, like what I think of as voguing. But how would you yeah. characterize that difference between like the original J setting that was done by by female women dancers at HBCUs and then this new form done by LGBTQ um, guys and some women in yeah. Atlanta. It's, it's the future. The future is binary. The future is gender equity or gender balance, this flow between both genders, just as like there is a flow between black and white and Asian and Latin and trans, like all, we're just humans. This is a form of artistic expression that is just the human experience. And the idea that you can say you can have these militaristic moves and at the same time, soft and feminine. We're using language in a way that we've never used it to, before to describe an art form. Whereas the closest thing I can come to it is like, we're talking about Picasso, we're talking about Basquiat, you know, some of these very innovative types of visual artists that were doing things that were very binary, that were masculine and feminine and hard and soft all at the same time. It's only existed in the two-dimensional form up to this time. We have yet to even figure out how to capture it on film and tell those stories and put it into this sort of three-dimensional talky realm that we obsess about. You know, so to me, 
this is something that everyone has to pay attention to. And it's, it makes total sense. I mean, anybody that knows anything about American history and entertainment and things like that knows that the cornerstone of a lot of dance expression in our society comes through the Africa period, end of story. And anybody that wants to argue that on any other level is someone that is very foolish and misinformed. And even um, J the J setting, the original, <clears throat> excuse me, the original J setting that, that came out of Jackson State, those dancers um, have acknowledged that part of that creative form is rooted in African dance. Absolutely, so, without question. Without, yeah. you know, if you just, anybody that studies anything about West African culture, West African dance and things like that, or has made a trip to Ghana or the Ivory Coast or watched a video on YouTube, knows the answer to that question. The problem think, is that people are so scared of other cultures and they come from the same planet as they do. We're not asking you to like, you know, be interested in what they're doing on Venus or Mars. We're just asking you to be interested in what's going on planet Earth and people are still scared of it. And they're trying to quantify it as something that is less when actually it may be some of the solutions in moving forward that we all can participate in the more. For sure. So did you um, conceptualize this film because PBS wanted something about dance or had you created this film already or the idea of this film and then PBS brought it on board? PBS, How did that happen? Well, PBS had a series called If Cities Could Dance. They had already been doing it going around the country to different places, different cultures and highlighting different types of, of dance. Um, and they wanted to do something that was in Atlanta and they had been tracking J setting and were very interested in it. And they had found their way to uh, Leland Thorpe who is the leader of the Dan Atlanta dance champs. And so they wanted to highlight them. And so the problem was all of the sticks that were involved. And so there were people that were sort of in and out of the opportunity to be able to do the show, but there was a lot of concerns about the health and safety issues at the time. This was at the height of, you know, George Floyd and the pandemic, and people just didn't really quite know how to put this into a, a game plan. Um, and so for me, it was being introduced to the guys and exposed to something that I immediately understood and I got. And initially, the, I saw this as nothing less than five minutes of, of Bob Fosse. <laughs> like, how do I turn this into a spectacle that is an undeniable spectacle? So for me, my contribution was, you know, multiple setups of routines. We're shooting this like a big production number for a movie wardrobe changes, you know, really insisting that they bring their best selves to set, style, different uh, wardrobe for different specific setups in different venues around the city, stuff like that. And really pushing them to their highest level of energy and then being able to capture that. So it was really taking what they already had as a group, the dance champs, and taking this momentum that PBS already had with this series and saying, we're gonna go to another level. We're gonna make this, we're gonna make this better than anything that's ever been done for this particular series, you know, if cities could dance. And I remember running around like a lunatic telling everybody we were gonna win an award. 
I really believed that um, in, in my heart as we were pushing along uh, with this. I took it very seriously and I was willing to take whatever risk was necessary to make it happen. And with the help of you know PBS and of course Dance Champs and all of the people that worked on it and even the people that helped to get me into the mix because initially I got into the mix because I'm a black director and they needed a black director or they wanted a black director. And so I qualified, essentially I qualified for the job. What people didn't realize was that I'm an HBCU kid and my favorite uncle of all time was gay and danced on Soul Train. So I got it. It made total sense to me. And there was a comfort level there between me, Leland and the rest of the dancers as well. It was a safe zone. And I love that connection with your family history and dance. That's so interesting. And I also love that you bring up Bob Fosse because when I think of his style of choreography, choreography, it's very much about, it's very sexualized, but it's also a little bit of a blend of that fierceness of male and female kind of colliding and the, the female dancers being tough and the, the softness too, so, and the sexuality. So I love that comparison that, that Bob Fosse was an influence. The other big thing I saw as an influence in this film is just the city of Atlanta. This The film has such a incredibly engaging look. You use drones to shoot some of the outdoor dance footage. And the city of Atlanta is such a huge part of it. it the neighborhoods, the skyline, Piedmont Park, the Krog Street Tunnel, murals, including the John Lewis mural at the corner of Auburn yeah. Avenue and Jesse Hill Jr. Drive. Can you talk about the unique look of the film and how you achieved it? I imagine that what you were talking about in terms of COVID restrictions had to play a part because you had to use drone footage, you had to get the dancers outside, you had to do things because of COVID. It was scary, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I wanted to do was do something that was anti-Atlanta film business. And what I mean by that is everybody comes here, they shoot all of these movies, films, TV shows, whatever, and they never highlight or show Atlanta. And I'm offended. I'm offended. I think Atlanta is an incredibly eclectic, beautiful, diverse, modern, first-tier global city. It's had the Olympics here, for the love of God. But everybody just skates over this stuff. And I was like, nah, we're going to ram this down people's throats. And that was one of the things that was really helpful with PBS, uh, KQED to be specific, was that they were game for that. They were like, yeah, we want to show the city. We really want to get here and, and show all of these different places um, to the point where like they were getting online, they were Googling and they would send me all these Googles of all these different places in Atlanta. And I'd say, well, that one's good. That one's good. But wait, here's this other thing. You got to check this one out. And just because, you know, your boots on the ground. So you know where things are um, a little bit more and you have a better feel for how things were, were working. But, you know, definitively it was really about, you know, letting these other filmmakers that come to Atlanta know, hey, you're missing the boat. Hey, you're missing these great locations. You think you know, you don't know. Um, QED wanted the drone. They like the drone stuff. 
Um, but at the same time, it's not just shooting the drone stuff, it's where you shoot the drone stuff. And so it was like Piedmont Park was the choice. Why? Because the grass was green. It rained the day before, so the grass was like super green and it's the costuming and they're wearing red and it's the red on the green and the flying over top and you see the city and all this other stuff. So there are these, you know, Fosse-esque visual aspects to this is as, as, as well that, you know, once again, taking this to the next level, it was this, you know, it, the whole concept was, you know, taking it from the club to the main stage. So taking it from the background to the foreground and getting it out there in front and being unapologetic about Atlanta. I think that people spend too much time apologizing for Atlanta. Well, we're not LA, we're not New York, we're not Chicago, we're really sorry about that. We're just trying to fit in. No, there's, there's stuff that goes on here that can't be any other place on the planet, period, end of story. You gotta claim it, you gotta own it, and you gotta stand up for it, and you gotta like bust through like you're a diva walking down a runway. <laughs> During a show, you have to be on a, you have to be unapologetic. Some of that sort of fierceness, that sexually binary fierceness, is a lot more of what Atlanta needs because it's a lot more of what Atlanta is. To be perfectly frank, if you're asking me, I'm so glad you brought this up too because it was something I wanted to ask you. That you know, we get so much. There's so much attention on Hollywood productions in Atlanta, but there has always been a really robust, interesting, thriving independent film scene, whether it's narrative film or documentary film. I think when I look at at your film, I I can't imagine anyone but an Atlanta director making it because you have all these street artists, you know, these murals involved. You have the Black Lives Matter banners. You just have elements that feel authentic to the spirit of what we know and love about Atlanta. And that's totally critical. So when you were studying film at Temple University, did you know you wanted to be specifically a documentary filmmaker or were you just interested in, in film and expressing yourself in that way? I just stumbled into it backwards. Um, I had initially went to school to be a journalist I wanted to be an investigative reporter. I saw myself as the guy with a little hat on that had the little note to press on the side and I had my little notepad and I ran around and I got the stories about things that people didn't know about or, you know, sort of outing all of the bad guys and things like that. That's how I saw myself. Um, I changed about halfway through college because I realized like, wow, everything you investigate or every article that you write about, it has to go through an editor. Somebody else gets in the middle of it and says, I like this, I don't like that, change this, change that. This is how, this is the sensibility of our newspaper. You've got to stay in your lane. You have to color within the lines. Um, anybody that knows me, truly knows me, knows that I cannot stay in my lane and I cannot color within the lines. It's just this defect that I have in my brain of how I see the world. And I've been that way since I was just a little boy. I think I drove my mother crazy and my grandmother even crazier with it. I was just really passionate about how I felt, 
how I feel about something was extraordinarily important. And that's what led me into filmmaking because I thought like, well, wow, I can go do filmmaking and I can finish the film myself and put it out there and say, okay, here I am. This is what I think. This is what I feel. And so that's what brought me into filmmaking. And then from there, the whole documentary aspect of it just developed. And the reason why it developed, to be perfectly honest with you, is that I came through a time in the film industry when Black lives did not matter, when people were not telling Black story. And so Black story was not a part of scripted story. And anything that was scripted about Black people was two-dimensional. It was stereotyped and it was misogynistic and it made Black men look bad and it made Black women look crazy. And I didn't appreciate it. I didn't like it. And like, I could be honest with you, didn't like it. I was very annoyed with how black people were portrayed in cinema because I am a black person who comes from a background of educated parents. Both my grandmothers went to college. Like I come from a, a group of people who are very sophisticated and prideful about who they are. So I did not know this stereotypical black experience that everybody kept pushing down my throat all the time. So that's what led me into documentary because I was like, wow, in documentary, I can tell the truth about people and not just black people, people in general. You know, I became fascinated with people that were of many different backgrounds, women, children, you know, the LGBTQ community, anybody that was marginalized, I started to see this correlation between how society was functioning and putting them into these stereotypical categories that were the complete opposite of who they were. And documentary was the, the sort of binding agent that brought those things together to get to a higher truth. So that's how I ended up in documentary, not because I was completely passionate about documentary. It was the only way to tell the truth or get somewhere close to the truth or make an attempt at it or a swing at it. And there's been so many great filmmakers over the years that have been a part of the Atlanta scene. Like you said, starting with Julie, Julie Dash is one of the people that's one of my idols. One of the, the people that I have the utmost respect for is Ruth Lightman uh, as, as well. I mean, these people have been telling these stories for generations, decades, you know, but people just aren't paying attention because everybody's in that sort of commoditized stereotypical lane all the time about how to tell stories about women and people of color and people that come from unique communities. And so documentary is the way that you do it. I'm bending more now into how do I bleed the documentary back into the narrative and the cinematic as well. So I'm floating into this weird space of like docudrama and scripted and how do I create more of that? That's where I'm headed with this. And that's where I would like to see, you know, the, the, the J setting narrative evolve to. I think we've just scratched the surface and there's so much more that we can do, including creating an entire artistic movement and music and getting this to be something that's accessible for all people. In my mind, I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've seen coming out of the LGBTQ community since disco where everybody loves it. You know, everybody wants to get on the dance floor with this, with this stuff. I think it's wonderful. You know, voguing of the early 90s, ballroom, all that stuff too plays into this too. It's all of these elements to, together. So now I'm ready to tell those stories. Like now I would love to tell a J setting story that's scripted with actors. I think it would be pretty cool. But now that we've set it up as like, this is a legitimate culture of people. Now let's talk about it. I would love to see that. I would watch that film. Yeah, I, I remember being 
engaged by voguing, but I have yeah. never felt so absolutely enraptured um, by a dance form as as I felt watching your film and seeing Jay setting. There's just something I don't know if it's the Atlanta element. It's it's just such an absolutely mesmerizing dance form. So this is not your first um, documentary. You've made a number of award-winning films, including Counter History's Rock Hill, After the Fall, HIV Grows Up, and Boxing Chicks, Women Boxers. You founded your film company, your production company, Tomorrow Pictures in 1994. What would you say is your mission um, at Tomorrow Pictures? What's your goal as a filmmaker? Um, the, the goal as a filmmaker and for Tomorrow Pictures is the story is in the telling. Stories are great. Everybody talks about stories. Everybody thinks stories are so interesting or whatever. But you know, anybody can tell a story. It's how you tell the story. It's the quality that you tell the story with. It's how close it reflects to the truth or some sort of metaphor that parallels the truth as well, that we get to a higher level, higher thinking, inclusivity, gender equity, you know, religious tolerance, cultural tolerance, you know, these things that allow everybody to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, so it's this we the people kind of thing. That's how I, I see it. And that's what I get energized about. And so I have like zero tolerance for anybody that is not interested in considering someone else's journey and respecting that space and that position. And I don't care what you're throwing at me, your rhetoric, your Bible, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. We have to respect each other. End of story. You know, I don't agree with what everybody does all the time, but you know what really set me off, Felicia, was this pandemic. The numbers of people that walked out of my life that said they were my friends, they cared about me, and the minute that somebody kills George Floyd, they can't talk to me anymore. You know what I mean? Like I make them feel uncomfortable because I'm an articulate black man who has his own business that's an entrepreneur that has his own personality and, and, and is someone who stands up for what he believes in. And all of a sudden you can't talk to me anymore. It's insane. The number, the amount of hate mail that I get or text messages that I get from people that are just absolutely positively evil. And I'm not talking about people I met in that last month or last week or last year. I'm talking about 10, 15, 20, 25 years of relationships with people that just vanished, vanished because people are uncomfortable with the idea of, a, of an egalitarian society. Actually consider the thoughts and feelings of all people. You know, I'm willing to die on that hill, you know, because that's how I got here. You know, my grandmother lived in Memphis, Tennessee, and, you know, picked cotton and she dreamed of going to college. And guess what? She did. And she sent my mom to college and she sent me to college. So that's what I honor. And it's because of this ability to respect yourself and respect others is that you're able to achieve. And so I share that with as many kids as I possibly can, black, white, blue, green, purple, or whatever. I was teaching over the pandemic as well. I had a one little white girl in my class who really wants to grow up and be a Black Panther. I mean, she's like 11, you know, but like that's her, but you, who, who am I to rain on that? I would never tell her she could not be Black Panther. End of story, would not do it. But I had another teenage Black kid in my class and he really wants to be Wonder Woman. Guess what? That's great too. I don't have a problem with any of this stuff. 
I just want people to have self-esteem. I want people to be very well socialized and I want people to contribute to society. This discourse that we have going on where we only want a select group of people to contribute to society, that's not gonna work. And these people need to get with the program. And once again, J setting is undeniable. And that's my position as a filmmaker. And that's what drew me to it. And so if I'm going to make enemies, I'm going to make enemies. If half the people love me and half the people hate me, I'm doing something pretty good. So I know I make people nervous all the time, but I don't care because I've worked really hard to get to the position I'm in and I'm a survivor and I've been doing this in Atlanta. You know, you know the deal with Atlanta over the past like 20, 25 years, you know? So there's something here, there's something magical, there's something special. That's why the whole world came into Fulton County during the last election and said, please, 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 Fulton County go blue so the rest of the planet doesn't implode. That's what this is. It was so significant. I filmed myself voting at the Fulton County Library on Ponce de Leon Avenue, you know, and not even realizing at the time that it's something historic. And that's what the J setting thing was too. You know, we were, we filmed in front of that John Lewis mural literally days after this man had passed. You can still see the flowers exactly. and the mementos. Exactly. There, I purposefully wanted that to be seen as well as an accent to all of this so people will forever know this is when this stuff was created and made and produced. You know, and everyone in Dance Champs took it seriously. You know, Leland, the leader of Dance Champs, he wept when we finished shooting in Piedmont Park. And I asked him, why? What brought you to tears? He said, because he finally was around some people who took him and his organization seriously. The adjacent scene in the world is just so grueling that we are never portrayed, and I am never portrayed in a positive light for, I'm never given my credit I sacrificed so much. I sacrificed my life for dance. I sacrificed my life for my team members. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. There's no length that I wouldn't go to. So to see you capture our raw moments and feelings on tape, it, it's, it's so gratifying. And, and it brought me to like tears. And I never cry. Like, the team, the, the team were like, I wish we would've got that on camera because I'm like stone cold sergeant all the time. It, it broke me because the work that I've been doing for a, a, almost 15 years, you guys kind of captured the greatness in a day. And, and the authenticity of everything that we do, you guys got today. And the most important thing for me is putting my work mainstream so people can see how hard we really work. And that's what got me today. Felicia, I'm done. I'm done with all of this. Like, we don't want to take seriously, or we're afraid of people, or we don't like them because we don't understand them, or we don't participate in their lifestyles or whatever. And it's not a black, white thing or whatever. It's a enlightened or closed-minded thing. 
And if you cannot see the light inside of all people, you're closed-minded. That's it. And you need to go do the work to change. And as a filmmaker, I offer these windows of opportunity for change. And I just consider myself a change agent. I consider this company and this organization, Tomorrow Pictures, an agent for change. That's how we bring ourselves into the world of our creative-based content and our corporate content that we're hired to do. Because we also have a mantra in that world and it's called inspired media solutions. That's what we're there to do. We're there to make you better. And that's why what we apply to J setting also applies to our other great corporate clients, which is, you know, the Atlanta, Atlanta Children's Hospital, the Community Foundation, you know, the King Center. We've got great clients that we help them to evolve. Another great client, it's called Snap Nurse, a Korean American woman who's built a multi-million dollar company over the last few years. Her company's in Colony Square, woman of color. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be there to help her build her business as well. Some of the best people I know in town come from all of these unique backgrounds. Uh, Brooke Sonreich, who's at uh, the editor of Oz Magazine. Lee Wong, who is the editor-in-chief of the Georgian Asian Times. Asha Gomez, who's in, of Indian ancestry, who has this wonderful food studio called Third Space and fuses Indian cuisine with um, the cuisine of Eastern culture, specifically India as well. All these people live in Atlanta, Felicia. They literally live right around the corner. We can go hang out with them. We can go to Crog Street, hang out with Asha Damar and eat at her space. People are missing the point about what's really here. And that ultimately is what Jay setting is about, is about truth and what is really going on in Atlanta versus this weird false narrative that Hollywood comes in and just creates this back lot. You know, Atlanta is not a back lot. Atlanta is a vibrant international city. Well, you are a very convincing advocate for Atlanta as the center of the universe. I am on board with that, Frederick Taylor. People who are afraid of your film, they can watch it um, during Out on Film virtually, yes. or they can go to an in-person theater to Landmark Midtown Art Cinema and see Taking J Setting from Underground Clubs to the main stage. But don't be afraid, jump right in. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Frederick Taylor, for joining us and, and talking about your really, really incredible film. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Um, this means a lot uh, to me, especially for, you know, the AJC as, as well. Um, I, I think it's, it's great for the paper to reflect the community that's ar around them uh, as, as, as well. So I applaud you. And I, I appreciate your courage and fierceness too. This, this says something about you as, as well. So this has been a wonderful experience. Um, we're gonna do an event uh, coming up at the end of the month in, uh, in accordance with uh, Out on Film as, as well through Bill Kalin uh, Marketing as, as well. So I will give you more details about that. I'd love for you to be there for that um, as, as well. And then we've 
become a part of a uh, digital platform called Loco Plus, which is run by some terrific women in the digital space as well, which is creating opportunities for more artists to get out there and express themselves and, you know, get paid what they're worth for their time as well. There's some good things going on here. And um, if I can ever do anything for you in the future, please just ask. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. Is the Bill Kalen event, are people going to be Jay setting? Of course. What are you talking about? Yes. I'm there. Okay. So I'm the other, there. and I'm going to tell you this now, so you can tell everybody that they shot an episode of a new show that's going to be on Disney Plus. It's called The World According to Jeff Goldblum, and the Jay Setters are going to be on an episode of that oh as well. God. So this is exciting. It's not going to go away. So I look forward to us, you know, circling the wagons again and talking more setting in the uh, in the future is as well but definitely this event I will send you the details but it will be uh, it um, in conjunction with out on film um, the first of October right around that time and then I will be bouncing around town quite a bit doing a lot of different speaking engagements um, through the uh, the Blackhead Club and the um, uh, Buckhead Business Association uh, as, as as well um, and talking a lot of J of J setting and why this is great and why it's good for business too. You're a busy man. It's crazy. <laughs> Conversion of a Broadway musical into a feature film sometimes works, as in Chicago and Greece, and sometimes doesn't. For example, Cats and a Chorus Line. Dear Evan Hansen, out in theaters Friday, is hoping to be more the former, not the latter. The filmmakers face several challenges which director Stephen Chbosky acknowledged in an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The musical on Broadway was relatively intimate and that feeling is magnified on the silver screen, where tight close-ups and quieter moments are more the norm. Read Rodney Ho's interview with the director on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Pre-pandemic, the coming of fall meant festivals. Yes, churches, schools, artists, municipalities, and foodies would gather to celebrate and delight in a cause and have fun. And though things have changed and some festivals are canceled, or they're happening in altered form, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has compiled a list of some of the many and varied festivals that are still happening around the metro area. Check out our extensive list of some of the fall festivals coming in late September and throughout the fall on AJC.com. The mere notion of a feasible stage depiction of Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, his ancient Greek drama about the Trojan War, written circa the 8th century BC, may seem rather inconceivable to begin with, never mind a one-man version of it. But that's just what co-adapters Lisa Peterson and Dennis O'Hare have imagined with An Iliad, which marks Theatrical Outfit's first live, in-person production since the COVID-19 shutdown some 18 months ago. Read our review of the production on AJC.com. Kawan Prather, also known as KP the Great, has spent close to three decades successfully making a name for himself as a DJ, producer, songwriter, and recording artist turned major label A&R executive. He's currently head of music for producer Pharrell Williams' multimedia company I Am Other. Prather, who was born in Vine City and raised in College Park, is one of this year's headliners at Afropunk Atlanta, coming to Atlantic Station's Pinnacle Lot on September 25th and 26th. Check out our interview with the musician and record executive on AJC.com and find out how to attend Afropunk Atlanta. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. 
The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. 